I'm not working. Problem solved. Wait, hold on there, mm -hmm. Belle. You can't just go ramming a man's personal things into some hole like that. Is that so? I didn't mean it like that. Mm -hmm. Hello and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast about the films that time forgot. I'm your co-host Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time unconvincing lady impersonator, Andrew Phillips. Well, hello there! And for our latest episode, we're venturing way out west to tackle cowboys, gunslingers and giant mechanical spiders in Barry Sonnenfeld's Wild Wild West. But does this blockbuster bomb survive its duel with Best Forgotten Movies? Find out. After the trailer, you yellow belly. Not getting enough lift. We need more speed. Gordy, that's a cliff. Yes, I know. That means the ground is going to end. Yes, I know. Gordon. 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 Before there was a secret service, there was West. Jim West. West. Jim West. Desperado. Are you a dangerous spy or just a handsome cowboy who likes to look around? I believe I'm that second one. Gotta stick to what we each do best. From the director of Men in Black. Now what? Let the party begin! Will Smith. Kevin Klein. Oh my gosh. I love this train. Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> and Selma Hayek. And it's a whole new West. The briefest glimpse of Will Smith's dick and balls star as Jim West, a Civil War hero who is ordered by President Kevin Klein and unconvincing makeup to join forces with US Marshal Kevin Klein and unconvincing makeup to take down diabolical inventor Dr. Arskis Loveless. That is his name, Arskis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it is, In yeah. unconvincing beard. <laughs> Shoddy steampunk, penis cannons, and seemingly unending scenes that make light of slavery follow in this family-friendly action-adventure. So why have we nominated Wild Wild West for consideration on Best Forgotten Movies? I mean, uh, I think we've got to mention that this was originally to tie in with The Magnificent Seven, and Wild Wild West wasn't our first choice. Yeah. We were originally going to cover The Lone Ranger, 
but uh, <laughs> it seemed unfathomably long and, <laughs> and also due to lack of interest. Yeah. <laughs> Although I think the tie-in doesn't really matter either because I'd imagine this magnificent Saturn film is going to suffer the same fate. Yeah, Westerns haven't really done that well in recent years. It seems like every few years they try to have a go at revitalizing the genre with some big blockbuster film and uh, it kind of goes nowhere. I feel like the best Westerns are the ones that are made on these low budgets and mid-budget levels that are actually based in modern times like yeah. No Country for Old Men yeah. or um, uh, which I recently saw Hell or High Water but every few years you get a Cowboys and Aliens or um, even Three Cents of Humor yeah. and The Lone Ranger of course and we were looking back on these films and trying to pick which was the biggest bomb of the lot and uh, it was a toss up between The Lone Ranger and Wild Wild West and we went with Wild Wild West because it was uh, kind of more interesting to talk about yeah <laughs> So, Andy, have you any experience with Wild Wild West, or is this your first duel with the film? No, I don't have any history with Wild Wild West. I never saw it at the cinema. The only thing I saw was, again, scenes from it in hi-fi shops. Yeah. As any film I haven't seen, that's usually my experience at that time period. <laughs> I'd seen things from it, but I'd never seen it all the way through. I mean, I don't have much of an affinity with that whole line of films anyway. I've never been a huge Men in Black fan. I mean, I liked the first film. I wouldn't say it's a classic, though. Mm. And then, yeah, the other two I'm just not that interested in. So, yeah, I don't have that much of a personal interest in that whole kind of almost like Sonnenfeld, Will Smith thing. No. This is a film that's... I think its reputation has gotten more and more warped as the years have gone by mm-hmm. as well. Because I know it wasn't well-liked when it came out, but I think it's almost become mythologized. Yeah. And I, I also think that even as society's changed and things have become more taboo to do, much yeah, like yeah. Uh, talk about race or to talk about, uh, to use disability as a way to <laughs> kind of uh, yeah. humiliate people. Looking back on this film, it's gone even far beyond what it was when it first came out. <laughs> So today really is the first time you've watched it, or yesterday, I guess. Yeah, and it was a very interesting experience because I've seen other shows talk about it and things. So I've seen clips from it, but I've never seen the whole thing in context. Yeah. Because I think with this film, if you pull something out of context, it's even more glaring. Yes. Than yeah. if you're just watching it as part of the film. Because the film itself kind of does work in and of itself. I don't think it's as much of a train wreck as other films I've seen. Yeah, it does sort of hang together. It just doesn't do it particularly well. Mm-hmm. And there are some jokes that are actually quite good in it, but there are a lot of jokes and set pieces in it that either aren't funny at all or just go on far too long, thus rendering them not funny. Yeah. And then there's a lot of sort of inappropriate stuff in there as well. Yeah. But yeah, like I said, on a visual sense, it is quite strong. And yeah, I think this is also where they obviously there is a lot of contention between people who like the TV series and were involved in the TV series and the people making the film. And there's a lot of just differences. However, I think that's not really the problem with the film. Yeah. In terms of those differences, that it's much more deeply rooted in yeah. terms of why this film didn't land and and has become notorious over the years well to talk about my experience with the film i was a big fan of men in black i think it's a great film like you say i don't think it's a classic but i think that yeah, the yeah. film hangs very well on the chemistry between will smith yeah, and yeah. tommy lee jones yeah, it's a and solid four out of five film isn't it, it very much so is I, I was a fan of barry sonnenfeld at the time as well i mean uh the, the adams family films were also yep. by him and I, I love both of them i actually think they're still probably his strongest films 
Yeah, especially the second one. The second one's great. The yeah. second one's truly great. It manages to capitalize on. I, I love the Harry Lloyd romance. Uh, the Harry Lloyd? Uh, what did I say? Christopher <laughs> Lloyd. Harry Lloyd. Yeah, Christopher Lloyd ago. romance. Yeah, sorry, I was watching some Harry Lloyd shorts earlier on. But yeah, the Christopher Lloyd romance. Uh, that, I think my, my personal Cusack. favorite is the the camp scenes. Oh with, yeah, with Peter McNichol. Are just <laughs> amazing. <laughs> but yes, as I've spoke about on Best Forgotten Movies before. Wild Wild West was a film that I saw twice in one day <laughs> at the cinema. There are a few films that I've actually seen twice in one day. Very recently, one that I did see twice was Star Wars The Force Awakens. But around this time, um, maybe a couple of years later, Planet of the Apes, the Tim Burton remake. Ooh. I saw that twice in one day as well. And both times, it wasn't by my doing. It was like, I went to see it by myself. And then when I was on the way out, friends wanted to go see it. So I ended up <laughs> going to see it again. And uh, at the time, I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was great. I didn't yeah. think it was terrible. No. I knew of its reputation, and then I just kind of discarded it. Mm. I never really thought about it again. I'm probably caught a couple of scenes from it here and there in the years since, but this is the first time probably going back to it and properly watching it. Yeah, yeah. All the way through since then, because <laughs> um, twice was enough. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I have seen this film before, but for this episode, it was like watching it fresh. I'd forgotten much of it. Mm. To just set it out there, there are some elements that I do like about it, but I can also see why it's got the toxic reputation that it has. Yeah. But I guess we'll get into that as we go on. Yeah. With this film, it even struck me at the time as well when they were doing it, because it did feel like they constructed and marketed the film almost as like a spiritual sequel to Men in Black. Yes. Because obviously this was before any of the Men in Black sequels and this was like the next thing that they were going to do in a similar style but dealing with a different genre. So in that way they definitely felt connected because they literally started this almost immediately after finishing Men in Black. Yeah. You can tell that they're trying to at times hit the same beats Mm -hmm. but yeah, it doesn't have that lightning in the bottle thing that Men in Black had where everything was just right. There's many things in this film that just aren't quite right, whether it's in the casting or what they're doing or something. It, it never quite gels together. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I, I guess we're starting to get into the context now. And as most of our listeners know, that before we begin talking about the films nominated for consideration, we like to set the scene. Yeah. So sit back, relax, and let Andy and I shoot our context loads all over the, <laughs> all, all over, over the you. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, um, I guess we're already starting to get into that with um, discussing Barry Sonnenfeld and the previous films. And I guess we have to look at Will Smith as well and the role that he was on. Yeah. Because he was an actor that was just hitting success after success yeah, in multiple mediums. Really on the rise. He was. Um, he had Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on TV. Yeah. He had many, I think he had like three albums that really did, did well. Um, all of which, uh, in retrospect, quite shit. And... <laughs> Uh, and um, if we look at the films that he was in at the time as well, I mean, Independence Day and Men in Black, two that popped to mind instantly as well. He, was, he wasn't he was just a rising star by the time that Wild Wild West came along. He was a star. Yeah. He was the star. Like I said, I do like Men in Black. I think it's a great film of itself, but that series is toxic. Yeah, it's the law of diminishing returns. Truly. And I've, I've heard a lot of people say about the third one as well, oh, it's pretty good. It, it's getting back to that old style. It's not. It's... it's um, <laughs> It suffers from many of the same problems that Wild Wild West actually suffers. Yeah. In which yeah. reshoots, shoehorned in scenes that actually don't match up with the rest of the film. Yeah, and uh, no great parts for women as well. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. And uh, that seems to be a recurring theme in Barry Sonnenfeld's yeah. films. I think Barry Sonnenfeld as a director is one that peaked very early. Yeah. It, he's never come close to recapturing the kind of run that he had with the Adams Family films and Men in Black. Yeah. And yeah, he's yeah. 
kind of bottomed out after that. Well, you've got films like RV and the most recent one, Nine Lives. Nine Lives. lives. Nine Lives is one of those films that I'm just like puzzled as to why any of those people signed on to make it. Yeah. It just looks on paper like such a weird project. Like it's like a French film. Do you know whose uh, passion project it was? Is it a Luc Besson? No, no, it's it is uh, Europa Cup, isn't it? Is it is Europa yeah. Cup. But the other um, acting partner in Europa Cup is actually uh, Christopher Lambert. Oh, really? And uh, <laughs> whereas all of the action films are more of Luc Besson's thing, this yeah. was a Christopher Lambert oh, wow. passion project. Right, okay. And originally he wanted it to be an adult comedy. Yeah, yeah. And he didn't want the cat to be able to talk. He just wanted it to emote with actions. And then, for one reason or another, he toned it back into this kid's film with Kevin Spacey as a cat. <laughs> and I guess part of the reason is it's got a decent budget. It's not very oh, low yeah, budget. Yeah, yeah. And I guess like the likes of Kevin Spacey he comes in for like two days of actual acting yeah, and then does another couple of days, another Voice week work, in a yeah. booth. <sighs> so that's where Barry Sonnenfeld's at now. Yeah. <laughs> So how did they actually come to Wild Wild West? And why is Wild Wild West? I think we have to set that up first. We have to really begin with what Wild Wild West is. Well, it's called The Wild Wild West yes. uh, in the TV series. They jettisoned the the oh, in yeah. the title. And add a little wiki wiki. Wiki wiki world. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> It was a TV series in the mid-60s. Yes. I've never seen anything of it, but I believe it's like a Western version of James Bond. It was in that sort of slurry of TV series that came out following the Bond phenomenon of yeah. 1964. So you had like your Mission Impossibles and things like, and your Man from Uncles. and the well, Saint? Well, yeah, The Saint as well. Wasn't The Saint a little bit before I was, I was then? Just, that's what I was just thinking. But, um, then I couldn't... They were all of a piece. Like, yeah, it came in the wave. And obviously, Wild Wild West was distinguished by the fact that it wasn't set in modern day. It was yeah. a Western, but of a James Bond and almost like his assistant, like Q-type person yeah. in the West. And everything was almost like retrofitted for that style. But it was in no way the kind of steampunk thing that we yeah. see in the, in the, the well, film version. I mean, in the very little research that I was actually able to do into the Wild Wild West, I really should have watched a couple of episodes or something <laughs> prior to this. But um, I did get a couple of write-ups that did say that there were some sci-fi elements to a few of their yeah, episodes, yeah. but largely it was a much straighter Western show. Mm. But I saw it described as a show that flirted with other genres. Yeah, so yeah. you would sometimes have a sci-fi episode or a thriller episode and sometimes even a horror episode yeah but yeah i think largely it was a much straighter show so then we cut to the early 90s and the wild wild west brand is starting to take off for one reason or another it's weird it seems that back then there were a couple of old tv shows that were coming back around as like properties to redevelop for big budget blockbusters and one of the first people that they had, had involved had attached to wild wild west as a property was richard donner and mel gibson i mean there's there's a whole stream of them i think the early 90s was where the seeds were sown for what blockbuster cinema is now yeah where any brand can be made into a film yeah uh, to sell and i think the first port of call of this which was relatively conservative by today's standards was going and looking at old tv series from like the 50s and the 60s and then and then sort of making them into films okay well i guess it's the studios really trying to find their feet with brand and trying mm, to find yeah. out what works anymore with <laughs> there's many more to cover in the future as understand. well yeah exactly because we've done um and we've done the phantom as yeah. another one we've done the shadow i mean i know that these aren't specifically tv shows but um this is a period in studio history where they're really struggling to find their feet on, as to what audiences want but yeah, we got a whole slurry of them. And yeah, this was originally meant to be a, a Richard Donner, Mel Gibson collaboration. Yeah. But they 
ended up jumping off it and going on to another TV series adaptation of Maverick. Which seems like remarkably similar, stripping away the sci-fi elements and stuff like that. But in terms of the property that they've chosen to jump on, the Wild Wild West and Maverick seem like similar shows. I guess the next time it resurfaced was in 1995, and I'll hand over to you. Who did it resurface with? So yeah, it was rumoured to be attached to Tom Cruise, as pretty much all projects were at the time. He was one of those guys who, at the time, whenever a big movie was touted about, he was always one of the names that was attached to Star. Yeah, I think post-Top Gun, he was just inescapable, really. Yeah, for about 20 years, really. Yeah, until when we were talking about War of the Worlds, that was probably the last time that it was... I'd say so. I'd say that's where the star kind of started to fall. Mm. And now we've got the likes of Rock of Ages and stuff yeah. like that, which yeah. are huge bombs. But Mission Impossible, still a moneymaker yeah. for him. And uh, it's because of foresaid Mission Impossible that he didn't end up getting involved in Wild Wild West and end up getting involved in yet another TV series adaptation. Yes. It's kind of typical of a lot of projects where people get on and off. Mm-hmm. until someone sort of committed into actually following through. And I was saying we were mentioning that there's lots of other 90s TV series of which we've already done, like we did Lost in Space yes. earlier in the year. And uh, there's another one, another biggie that we haven't yet tackled. Is that The Avengers? The Avengers, yeah. Yep. So yeah, the 90s, particularly the mid to late 90s, was a real hotspot for these 60s TV show revivals. Mm-hmm. And I'd say probably, with the exception of Maverick, I don't think any of the other ones were successful. Well, Mission Impossible. Oh yeah, Mission Impossible, yeah. yeah. I actually think that Mission Impossible is a series that is better now than it was when it first started, because Mission Impossible 1, I, I quite like. I think it's a good yeah, film. Yeah. It's, it's a good Brian De Palma thriller. Mm. But uh, Mission Impossible 2 kind of stopped the franchise dead. Mission Impossible 2 is really really a James Bond movie through the eyes of John Woo. Yeah. Which I'm not sure is a particularly great idea. Maybe that's another one to circle for a few yeah, Best Forgotten yeah. Movies episodes. But I think now Mission Impossible has almost like transcended its roots. Yes. It has become its own separate entity now. Finally. Yeah, so, and then it finally landed with Barry Sommerfeld. Was that via Peter... Uh, John Peters, is it? Yeah, sorry, John yeah, Peters. John Peters, the producer, yeah. yeah. The hairdresser slash producer. Yeah, John Peters, not Peter Gruber. He was actually a hairdresser, you know. That was yeah, his, yeah. He was yeah. a hairdresser to the stars. I think it was Barbara Streisand's hairdresser, specifically, is what yeah. he was famous for. There's some really fascinating books on him, anyway. He's definitely one of those people who's had a very interesting career trajectory. Yeah. One minute he's a hairdresser on Rodeo Drive, and the next minute he's producing Barbara Streisand films. Yes. And then ends up becoming the head of Sony Pictures for two years. Yeah. There is an interesting book, isn't it, that's called How They uh, Took Sony for a Ride. <laughs> no, There's not. a great, I mean, I m- must post a link to it because there's a great book about how they sort of almost ran Sony Pictures into the ground. Yeah. It's not really something to boast about, no. but I guess if they're going to make money out of it, they might yeah. as well release a book. Yeah. So this became a Sonnefeld John Peters production. And again, yeah, it was constructed as a sort of follow up to Men in Black. Yeah. This time, was Will Smith in the running? I know there were quite a few people who were sort of in contention with it, but I'm pretty sure Will Smith was in the Jim West role for quite some time beforehand, yeah. and it was the other role that was... It was. It was the uh, Artemis Gordon role that was eventually played by Kevin Klein. But originally, they wanted George Clooney for the role, yeah, he and attached. he was actually yeah. cast at one point. He dropped out of Jack Frost. Yeah. I mean, quite quite far into <laughs> production there. on Jack Frost. Uh, well, he dodged another one with this yeah, film as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he joined Wild Wild West, but they realized that as production went on that 
they would have to retool the film around his sensibilities as an actor mm. and it just wasn't worth it for that and it was yeah. a kind of like an amicable agreement on behalf of Clooney and yeah. Sonnenfeld and they parted ways and I think it was also the fact that within the structure of the script the Artemis Gordon role is a supporting role really yes. like the main character is Jim West and Artemis is the supporting character to the main character yeah. and I think George Clooney at this point in his career was really only interested in leading man roles yeah yeah which is kind of what he excels in anyway definitely yeah he was really trying to establish his star yeah, as well yeah. his star power and i want to talk about as well jack frost a film that he left quite <laughs> far into production in that um if anybody's seen that film the snowman in the film still looks like george clooney yeah. that was the snowman that they made for george clooney that's how far into production they were yeah. when he decided to leave so he does got, look a lot like george clooney it as well. is george clooney it's a very bulbous misshapen george clooney but it's unmistakably <laughs> clooney uh, it's not michael keaton no Michael Keaton ended up being in some really like weird anonymous films in the late nineties. I was like, thinking like Multiplicity, Multiplicity as yeah. another one. Yeah, I, I I watched that a couple of times actually. When I mean, it came I think out. following his dropout from Batman, he kind of was lost in movie land for about ten years. Absolutely, he's one of those actors that I really looked out for in terms of come on, just the next film will be a good one. Yeah. Come on, because as a kid, I fucking loved Batman, and Michael Keaton was somebody that I really wanted to do well. And uh, I, actually, I'm I'm really happy. Of where he is in his career now, oh, yeah, and this yeah. huge comeback where he's not only just a fantastic actor, but he's also an Oscar-winning producer as well. Yeah, because I think in that period, the only film of note that he did was uh, Jackie Brown. Yes, and that was quite a minor role. It as was, well. it was, it wasn't a supporting role. It no. was a supporting, supporting role. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there were a couple of other names were like in the mix as well before George Clooney was cast. It was yes, like is it Matthew McConaughey and, and Johnny Depp? Johnny Depp, yeah. I would say that Johnny Depp dodged a bullet here, but he really just saved it for later, didn't he? Yeah, really? yeah. <laughs> he dodged one Western big budget bomb to join another one a decade or so down the for line. An even more inappropriate character. <laughs> yeah, I've got Native American roots. He still hasn't Honest. proved that. Yeah, he's like I'm one twelfth Native American. Yeah. <laughs> I think pretty much most yeah. people could probably say that. A Native American once farted in the same toilet as me. <laughs> I lived within a three miles radius of somebody who was Native American. I've been to Native America. I've been to one of their casinos. <laughs> uh, yeah, but and Matthew McConaughey was the other one. All right, all right, all right. Which I, I don't think either of those would have worked. I no. mean, not, not to say that much in Wild Wild West works, but Kevin Klein does. Yeah. Well, I think the main problem is that the chemistry between those two characters doesn't work, but I think the reason is mainly because of the script. Yeah. Because it just has them bickering throughout the whole film, mm-hmm. and there's no real um, alignment point. Or, yeah, there's no, and there's no reason coming for them together. Yeah, and there's no reason for them to not like each other as well. No. Which is the other problem. Racism, yeah. I say that is. <laughs> I mean, they've got different working methods, but that's about it, really. Yeah. There's never a point, really, where they actually... Um come to appreciate the other person's working method or oh, yeah, actually yeah. Uh, like take it on board I, I guess well there is that one scene where will smith dresses up as a woman yeah. i guess i guess that's supposed to be the crossover point yeah that's supposed to be the finally they've accepted each other moment. which is definitely one of the more bizarre parts of the film incredibly so <laughs> especially down to the flame frame boobs oh yeah that, that's that's the part and all the noises <laughs> And just the fact that, like, obviously they have that seduction scene and it's in front of 300 people. Yeah. And it's as if no one else in the room exists at that yeah. point in the film. Like, the, the film just tries to make you ignore that there's 300 people looking at this scene that's going yeah. on on the stage. They try and make you ignore it and it's just the weirdest thing ever. Yeah. That wasn't my proudest boner, I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is a fine figure of a man. Yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> and a woman. Mm. 
I suppose there's a more convincing woman than Kevin Klein was anyway. So. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> Even though Will Smith did have facial hair. He totally did, but that Kevin Klein in woman's makeup is yeah. truly horrendous. I think this is where they do fall flat is the fact that, okay, Kevin Klein isn't that convincing in the makeup, but they never really made a proper joke out of it. Nope. At the time, they tried to afterwards, mm-hmm. like where he's making jabs about how unconvincing it is. But why didn't they do it during the scene? Yeah. Because it could have been a really funny scene yeah. with Kevin Klein in drag, but because there's not much comedy mind in it, yeah. it just becomes really odd. In fact, the makeup is apparently so good in the eyes of Jim West that later on, he does mistake an actual woman. God, that's a joke that goes on for far too long. Oh my gosh, far too long. That's anyway, one of those jokes that should have been a one-time thing, but they repeat it like four or five yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, like one punch gone. It's that kind of thing. Just a nice little jabby joke to yeah, throw yeah. in there. I guess that's the thing with most jokes in this film, is they just hang about forever. Well, the script is so ass about faces that it makes the throwaway jokes the central jokes. So yeah. jokes that you would normally have as throwaway in any good comedy film. They make a big deal of for yeah. some strange reason. And yet some of the more witty parts of the film are thrown away. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's literally ass about face. Like it just doesn't know where its funny bone is. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's all the more telling that this is a film that's gone through numerous reshoots to add in humor and yeah. things like that. And it's like, well, which bits did they add? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'd imagine all the things that are obviously green screened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, an advert from Best Forgotten Movies here, just a little appeal and to keep our fans updated. Oh, wow, first. Yeah. To help us continue to keep the lights on at Best Forgotten Movies HQ, we're launching a new series of movie commentaries under the name The Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Currently, we have recorded commentaries for Spectre and Alien Resurrection with more to come. This content will be available to any of our fans that donate to our Patreon account found in this podcast description and on our Twitter and Facebook pages. So, now back to the show. Well, I think we've now set the scene, haven't yeah. we, really, for um, when this film was made and who it was made with and other versions that might have come to be but didn't. And I think it's time for us to actually draw our pistols against Wild Wild West and ask, I'm going to ask you, what, what did you think of the film in general? Like I said before, I don't think it's the train wreck that people would make it out to be. I mean, it's got a lot of bizarre moments and a lot of inappropriate moments. And yeah, a lot of the jokes either go on too yeah. long or they fall flat. But... I do feel that it can be redeemed in some of the ideas that it's trying to put across and obviously the general production design. Yeah. And again, some of the performances in the film. The film is kind of weird that there are some really nice performances in the film and there's some god-awful ones in the film as well. And again, it it all comes back down to the script as to why those performances are so bad Mm -hmm. or good. I keep getting these films where they're like they're ripped to shreds on the internet and people read into them probably a little bit too much actually mm-hmm. and then you actually watch it in context as a, as a flowing film and it's like yeah it's not great but it's not that bad yeah it hung together it didn't like it didn't lose me like I mean there's other films I've watched for this podcast series that I were a real slog to get through and that, that film wasn't really a slog to get through it's still quite entertaining yeah all the way through so I said yeah and and obviously because it is so visually like sumptuous that kind of gets you through. And obviously, things like Kenneth Branagh sort of get you through as well. Yeah, definitely. He's clearly enjoying every moment that he's on the screen. (laughs) Well, I will meet you halfway in that I will say that it's only in part the train wreck it has a reputation of being. I'd say that there are moments that really suffer throughout this film. But I am not going to sit here and pretend that it's not without potential in the idea. it's not without some merit. Yeah, and... 
I mean, most of that, like you say, is tied down to the visuals. I like a lot of the visual ideas that they're dealing with, including the giant spider, which everybody yeah. always uses as an example of all that is wrong with films. I simply think that despite how visually interesting the film is at times and what good ideas it flirts with, the script is just awful yeah, for me. Yeah, it's a real mess. It's truly a- an awful mess of a script. But I've seen people speak about this film and talk about it as if you could never have made a decent film with this set of moving parts. Hmm. And I think you could have if you oh, just definitely. moved them around. Made. Yeah, there is a decent film lurking in there somewhere. Definitely, um, yeah. And like I said, yeah, I think it's one of those films that as the internet and like YouTube culture has grown mm-hmm. over the last, I say, 15 years, well, sort of since this film has been made, really, I feel it's almost been built up into something that it's actually not. Yeah. And yeah, it is a bit of a stinker, but it's not something that's going to like ruin your life or anything like no. that. No. I mean, this is a period, though, where I guess the media really liked to tear down these type of films. He's yeah, kind yeah. of like star-powered passion projects. And I was thinking, like, Waterworld is another oh, close yeah. example as well. Yeah. That's another one that gets tore down that was also marred with reshoots, etc., yeah. etc. Postman. <laughs> yeah, the postman. Oh. Yeah. In fact, any Kevin Costner, 90s <laughs> Kevin Costner big-budget yeah. film. But um, that said, I, I, I will defend elements of Wild Wild West, but there's plenty to oh, criticize yeah. here. There's plenty to tear down. Yeah, I, I can't sit here and pretend that it's it's a, no. <laughs> a, a, any good film, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, so where to begin? Oh, I guess maybe the story and characters. We've already spoken yeah, about how yeah. incoherent it is. I think the real problem is that it's a, a real mess of tones. Yeah, because the actual plot of it is actually not bad. It's fairly serviceable in terms of you've got a, a guy who's an ex-confederate yeah. who kidnaps all the best scientists in the US to create contraptions in order to take back power and reverse the outcome of the Civil War. I mean, that's... As fine. A, as a premise, is, is fine. As a, as a motivation for a villain, it's fine. Yeah. Completely in and of itself. And in fact, actually looking at what the original Dr. Lovers character was in the TV series, I think they made quite a lot of improvements to him. Yeah, wasn't he just simply a dwarf Yeah, in the original version? Yeah. So I think that part of it works, but I feel that at times it just gets lost within all the other stuff that's going on and other things they're trying to say. Yeah, if that was what the film was actually about on a scene-by-scene basis, then that would be fine. But I think, like you say, it loses itself inside itself almost, um, inside its own jokes that, like you say, go on too long. And I do agree with you, the tone is so mismatched. Because then you've got other, like... There should be one-off jokes, but they almost become subplots mm-hmm. about racism and disabled people and men dressing up in drag and the perfect fake boobs and things like that. Yeah. Things that should be one-off jokes get overworked so much that they almost become other story elements that just weigh everything down. It almost becomes the uh, the story of a scene. Yeah. The, the whole fake boob thing is its own scene. Yeah. And yeah, I guess uh, one of the things I really uh, just want to mention straight off talking about the kind of mismatched tone and the weirdness of what, what it brings up, because we've also got like the sexual innuendo of the loveless character yeah. that's constantly pushed to the forefront of the... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's not just subtext, it's text. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a scene where Loveless and Jim West first meet. I, I have to bring attention to. Oh, yeah. And I know that there's an already a podcast that has brought attention to it which is a how did this get made in the wild wild west episode but um i just want to discuss it further and we have the scene where loveless who's this confederate loving black hating individual you know Mm -hmm. he wants his slaves back yeah he was definitely on the wrong side of the war and the wrong side of history 
Mm-hmm. And then we have Jim West, who's our good guy, the guy we're rooting for all the way through the film, or at least should be. And he's obviously an African-American gentleman. And they have the scene in which they are sharing barbs with each other. It's a, it's all innuendo. And yeah. Loveless is talking about how... You're West, black! Yeah, Jim West <laughs> is black. And Jim West is, like, shooting back at him how he's in a wheelchair. You're disabled. And I'm I get black, it. But you're disabled. Yeah, but you're black. But you're disabled. <laughs> But even if we look at that, it's like the film is asking us to boo and hiss whenever Loveless <laughs> gives this kind of like black jibe. Like, yeah, um, yeah. what does he say? Something about, I haven't seen, I this haven't seen him in a coon's age. And and things like that, where it's just, just towing the line. And yeah. we're supposed to, as an audience, we're invited to boo and hiss at him. But we're also being invited to like cheer and laugh at Jim West's retorts about how, haha, you're in a wheelchair. You know, yeah. you've got no legs. <laughs> and... It's like, ugh, that's not good, mate. That's yeah. not good on any level. Why not joke about how he's horrible, how he lost the war? I know all, all these yeah, other things yeah. that he could joke about, but instead it's just as simple as, you're in a wheelchair. Yeah. And it's like, we as an audience are invited to be on his side. And by the end of that exchange, I'm just sat there going, you are both awful, awful people. I mean, what they should have done, and this is another one that's easily fixable and would actually strengthen the relationship between the the characters the fact that you could dispense with the disabled jokes is the fact that you could have had it as if because obviously they were fighting on opposite sides yeah and there is some sort of connection between loveless and and will smith's family yeah they have a history but why couldn't it have been that it was either loveless's stupidity or lack of foresight and also maybe partly down to will smith's character as to why he's in the wheelchair yeah. Why isn't there that kind of connection and sort of almost personal grudge against Will Smith and back and forth? Yeah. binds them together and it's like, it's blatantly obvious that's something they should have done. It's right and there. they could have it's... got rid of all the inappropriateness. Yeah. And still have him as that racist character, but have... Because there is a little quip about that Loveless makes himself about, if I'd known more about explosives, I wouldn't be in this position right now. Yeah. And why didn't they use that? Like, yeah. They could have had jokes about that instead of him being disabled. If we were to actually uh, look at the structure of this film from a writing point of view, because I absolutely agree with you. I mean, if we look at how this film starts, it's clear that the opening scene was never meant to be an opening <laughs> no. scene. And it doesn't really succeed in setting up the rest of the film all that well. It we just have a, an advert for the giant spider. Exactly. We have a, <laughs> a, 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 a man run past the camera going, giant spider. You know, <laughs> giant mechanical spider. As he's being chased by one of those flying discs. Yeah. And it, it's, it's clearly not shot or meant to be the opening scene of the film. No. It's a transition scene that should have been somewhere else, I think. Why not have the opening scene of the film to reference, like, Indiana Jones? Like, mm-hmm. a pre-credit sequence in which we get to see the last interaction between Loveless and Jim West. Yeah. Set up that conflict straight off, and we think Loveless is dead. Then later on in the film, he comes back, but Ooh, he's in he's a alive. wheelchair. Yeah, yeah. You know, totally. that's your setup. That's well, your film. There's other weird things that it does structurally as well. Is that this scene that we've been talking about is meant to be Loveless's coming out party, which is a weird yeah. turn of phrase that they use in the film. But it's the scene where he's saying, yep, I'm alive, but we've already seen him alive like a couple of scenes back. Yeah. I mean, we didn't know who he was, but it kind of spoils the surprise of him popping up. And the way that they staged the reveal, it's almost as if there was a scene once upon a time, like the one we've just described as a pre-credit sequence. And this is the, oh, he's still alive moment sort yeah. of thing. And this is what he looks like now after yeah. the incident that occurred in the pre-title sequence. And yeah, it's very um, oddly structured in that way that they, they do have weird setups for things that haven't happened. See, this is the thing that I struggle with with this film is that 
the fixes, they're so blatant. Yeah. They're in your face. That's why I have a real hard time with it because even just talking about it now, we're already coming up with a better version of this $170 million. <laughs> it's like people were paid to do this. I, why <laughs> like this. I mean, obviously, when you get into the real nitty-gritty of filmmaking, you do realise why things are the way they are. Yeah. But even so, when you've got things that are this blatant, it's just like, come mm-hmm. on, guys. You are here to make a good film. Yeah. And at the end of the day, this is a perfect example of a film that could have been good, wasn't good, cost a lot of money lost a lot of money yeah because they basically didn't put the effort in the story yeah and to go back to that opening scene as well with that mad scientist running through the mm-hmm. uh, forest being chased by a uh, razor disc of some <laughs> sorts i was listening to the commentary and although i didn't notice it watching it myself barry sonnenfeld actually said that the actor running away from the disc and the actor whose head is on the floor who's, who's decapitated they're two separate characters that have been kind of like spliced two together scenes, in, yeah. in the edit from two separate scenes. And once he mentioned it, I was like, oh, yeah, I can see it now. But <laughs> it, it just goes to show just how hobbled this film has been mm. in the edit as well. Even just watching it from the first time properly, you can tell that this is a film that's been edited to ribbons. Mm-hmm. And there are literally scenes missing. And there are also scenes that just come out of nowhere because there are obvious reshoots. Yeah. And yet they didn't go back to fix the obvious gaps that are there yeah the most obvious one is the one of the ones at the beginning after the first major set piece yeah it's after you've had the whole stagecoach chase where mm. um, jim west is on a stagecoach full of explosives and managed mm. to stop it just before it hits this huge manor with a party inside and that's when we're introduced to kevin klein there's a whole exchange that happens in there after that's finished, the climax of the entire action set piece is this stagecoach of explosives rolling into the manor and it blows up with our characters still inside. Mm. Fade out. Fade in and our characters are completely fine. And in Washington. And in Washington. What happened? Many hundreds of miles away. <laughs> yeah, they just simply look at each other and say, now what? Yeah. And then we see the room that they're in explode. There's no jumping out of a window at the last minute or anything like that. We just see them in the next scene completely fine after a huge explosion. And that happens more than once, that kind of cut where you get the feeling that, oh God, what have we cut out here? And there's other moments with, I mean, not that they're particularly well developed anyway, but the sequences with characters you think would have been there because of their status in the film who aren't there. Mm-hmm. The main thing of that is Salma Hayek's character, who is incredibly peripheral anyway. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason for her to actually be in the film other than to actually have some sort of woman character in there. Yeah. I mean, she's billed as being quite a major character, but she's not. She's very peripheral, and she's not even in the final act. She's just no. absent from it completely. And honestly, I cannot remember a single line that she uttered. No. I remember what she was wearing. <laughs> Yeah, but, or not yeah, exactly. But I cannot remember a single line that she uttered, no. which goes to show that her role was in the film. Yeah. It was simply tits on legs. Well, you've got the obvious one, and it's almost as if the actors, as the characters, are commenting on how badly put together the script is. When at the end, she's going, "Oh, I kind of tell a little fib. Professor Escobar is not my father; he's my husband." And then I think one of them just goes, "Why didn't you tell us that from the beginning?" Yeah. <laughs> It's like, as if it would have, yeah, why didn't you tell us that from the beginning? As if it would have changed the outcome of anything yeah. in the rest of the film. It's just such a stupid, like, little get out of jail yeah. card just so they can add some sort of sexual tension to the proceedings. Yeah, but it doesn't really need to be there anyway. Much like that scene you were talking about on the train with the uh, snooker ball, the snooker ball scene is the only reason for her character existing. Yeah. But it's doubly annoying that, in fact, it's her character that ruins their plan. Yes. They wouldn't be in the position that they are in the following scene without her. Yeah. If they'd been on their own, 
they probably would have been fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or we would have at least got to see some kind of action set piece yeah. of them trying to fight back against Loveless. Yeah. Instead, they just simply knocked themselves out by accident yeah. due to Salma Hayek's tomfoolery. Yeah, but it's almost as if the director's going, oh, we can't do any more sleep now, sleep now. <laughs> <laughs> I actually quite like the scene that follows as well. The run through the cornfield is probably one of my favourite scenes in the film. The run through the cornfield's good. The bit afterwards is a bit too drawn out. Oh, when they've still got the metal things yeah. attached and they're just yeah. walking through the desert forever. Yeah, and then again, they seem to get out of the contraptions quite easily. Oh yeah, it's just, oh, there's my pocket. Like they spend too much time establishing the fact that, yeah, these are magnets, guys, but then they don't use that time to actually work out a clever way of getting them out of the contraption. The yeah. next scene, they're just out of the collars. You know what? Couldn't they have thought of a clever way that they could have used Loveless's own device against him? Like you would oh, yeah. considering again how this is built up as being the centerpiece contraption of the film. Yeah, it's his core gadget. Yeah, it, it, it is until we get to see the giant spider. But wouldn't it have been better if Loveless's end, rather than actually just falling out the back of a giant spider's yeah, yeah. ass, he was in fact decapitated by one of these discs yeah. by some kind of piece of metal or something that they attached to his wheelchair or something like that. You yeah. know, just just some way in which his own wrongdoing comes back to bite him in the arse. Yeah, and I think. As well, you could go even further, especially with the whole steampunk idea. I mean, it would have been even cooler if they'd done that earlier in the film. Yeah. And they'd come back just as a head. Actually, to go even more outlandish would have actually probably been better than having just as a head yeah. with a mechanical skeleton thing going on. Yeah, I mean, that's why I don't have issues with the general premise and concept. Yeah. And you can go quite wild with it if you want to and be really quite creative. But it's almost as if because it doesn't quite go as wild as it should do yeah. in certain areas. Despite its style. It, yeah, it does have that kind of half-baked yeah. feel where it doesn't embrace yeah. steampunkness because if you're going to do steampunk you just do steampunk yeah. if they'd gone out of it it would have been a very good steampunk film and it's a shame that they do sacrifice all those kind of story elements uh, you know tying things up in ways that would have been far more satisfying for scenes like you mentioned earlier for the jokes that go nowhere yeah. for the lynching scene that seems to go on forever yeah. in which Kevin Klein, one of our good guys recommends that this entire rabble lynch yeah. Will Smith's character simply because he's black and tapped on a woman's boobs by accident and then we're led to that exchange in which he reasons that slavery wasn't all that bad apparently i listened to an interview with Patton oswald in which he said that hell for will smith is listening to that scene on repeat over and over again and it's truly an awful scene that just doesn't know when to end. I mean, again, I think it's one of those scenes that has to be really seen in context. Yeah. Because, yeah, if you take it out of context, it's completely inappropriate. And you can kind of see why they put it in there. But it is another one of those scenes that the reason it's so bad is because it goes on for far too long. Yeah. It's just, it, yeah, you say it gets uncomfortably long. But that's the thing is I do think there is a story in the setup that they have. Like we've talked about, I like the idea of there being previous history between Loveless and Jim West. And I like the idea of Jim West being an African-American and that being an important part of that character because yeah. of what he's overcome and managed to achieve in a world that doesn't appreciate black people. Yeah. I like all that setup. I wish that it was used for more than just the odd joke here and there. Yeah. I wish it had more thematic depth. Well, you do get little moments of that, but it's done in such a way that it just feels totally out of place. Yeah. Because you get the whole scene where he's talking about the new liberty and everything like that and the tank and yeah. how Loveless and not McGrath was responsible for that. But he's saying it in what's meant to be a sad scene, but in fact, he's standing in a field 
of ex-Confederates. Yeah. And the film is trying to make you feel sad about that. Yeah. The film is so confused at that point. It really is. Because what emotion are we supposed to be feeling? Because you've already set these people up as being the bad guys. Yeah. Because, like, yeah, there is place for that. And I liked that part of the story. But the fact that they put it there. Yeah, yeah. It was just weird. And I'm like, why are you feeling sad for all these people? These people will be probably responsible for killing your family. Directly, in fact, because yeah. they're part of, um, oh, what's his name? Um, Ted Levine's character. Who I think was killed off far too soon. Oh, General Bloodbath, Bloodbath McGrath. McGrath. McGrath, that's it. McGraw, I almost said. Uh, yeah. He was a great, great look as well. He was. And the whole ear trumpet thing yeah. where he keeps turning it upside down to MCR. Oh, that's horrible. It's disgusting. Yeah. I fucking loved it. The makeup's really good in this film as well, like, it's Rick Baker. That's the thing. The only makeup that I actually don't like is Kevin Klein and Drag, because he looks like Kevin Klein and Drag. Yeah. But I actually like him as the president. I like Kevin Klein playing multiple roles in his films. Yeah. (laughs) He does it quite often anyway. I think, is it it Meet Dave? No, that's not Meet Dave. It's Dave. Dave, yeah. Dave and... The president uh, and his body double. Yeah, and he does it again in Fierce Creatures as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not a great film, but I think as a dual performance, it's actually quite good, especially when he plays his own father. Yeah. Which is a great character Mm -hmm. in a not-so-great film. Another one for the podcast. Yeah, but the the film is so confusing. It's confusing its casting as well, because the cast is great but i'm not sure whether they all go together yeah because you've got characters that are playing it very contemporary like will smith but also set against characters that are playing it more true to a period piece like kevin klein and kenneth yeah yeah and you've got this mismatch that never quite comes together yeah yeah you you do get the feeling like will smith's very detached from everyone else Mm -hmm. like in his portrayal everyone else kind of knows what the kind of thing they're in yeah but with will smith it's like they're trying to repeat the character that was in Men in Black. Yeah. I mean, at this point in time, there was a Will Smith character. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's kind of got out of that now, but at the time there was Will Smith, the character, who had been obviously nurtured over many, many years on television and then had come to fruition in Independence Day and then Men in Black. Yeah. And this was yet another iteration of that style yeah, of yeah. character. It was simply an extension of it, yeah. wasn't it? That and was it probably it. wasn't until, say, when he started doing stuff like Ali and things where he sort yeah. of broke out of that. But yeah, it does feel very much at odds with what everyone else is doing. And he did start to challenge himself in terms of blockbusters with the films like I Am Legend, which suffer not because of Will Smith, but because of story and directing issues. Yeah, but uh, CG. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, but him, he is great in that film. Yeah. And then we, we were left with After Earth. And just talking about Will Smith for a second, I was I the only person that saw his dick and balls in this film? I don't see. I don't. I don't. Did think you I see it as well? No, no. You know when he falls out of the water tower, yeah, and he lands on those sandbags and he, he bounces up onto the screen for just a moment, oh, really? and his dick and balls come into frame. Oh, I'm gonna have to go back and watch that. Yeah, I, I freeze framed it. I was like, <laughs> that's clearly his dick why, and balls. Why? Why are you freeze framing? Because that? I was idly just watching, and then suddenly, curiosity. dick balls. You know, my brain told me something. You've just seen something. Special. Spectacular, Gareth. You need to go back a couple of frames. <laughs> so I did. It's. I guess it's the new Jessica Rabbit of its day. Yeah. But well, <laughs> it, that's the funny thing. Incidentally, the rewrite of the script was actually done by the two writers who wrote the screenplay for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, really? Yeah. Is that um, Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman? Yeah. I just sort of looked at some of the names of these writers and was like, Are they real names? S. S. Wilson. Is he a boat? S. S. Wilson. Mr. Seaman. Like. I mean, we've got six writers on this film as well. Yeah. We've got Jim and John Thomas. Who came up with the story. Yes. S.S. Uh, Wilson and Brent. John Thomas. <laughs> you got John we've Thomas. Got John Thomas as well. S.S. Wilson. <laughs> Brent Maddock. Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman as well. Peter S. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you call yourself that? I have no idea. Why would idea. you leave it at that? <laughs> 
Hi, my name is Peter S. Seaman. I would really like to read one of the original scripts. I'd like to read the John and Jim uh, Thompson. John and Jim? Yeah. Well, hey, they... I'm John and Jim. We're writers here. Well, the other film that I know them from is Predator. That's yeah. the other film that they wrote. I'd like to read the iteration yeah. of this. But yeah, we've already spoke about Sama Hayek's performance or lack of performance. Yeah, she got awful in this film. Really I was bad. actually really surprised how awful she was. Yeah, because I, I really like Sam Hayek. Yeah, she's yeah. a great actress. Well, there's two problems. Her performance is awful anyway. Yeah. I mean, there's no two ways about it. It. I mean, it's not even just the fact that she's written badly. She's not playing it particularly well either. Mm-hmm. She's just playing it like she doesn't really care. Mm-hmm. And for a character that's billed quite high, uh, she's in the film so very little and makes so little impact. In 15 the film. minute screen time at oh, most. Oh, yeah, tops. I say it's dealing with the women in this film, including Salma Hayek, because we're. Uh... Barry Sonnenfeld's background as a cameraman in porn comes in most handy. Because <laughs> yeah. that's how he shoots it. I, I was listening to the commentary and he does come across as quite creepy in the commentary yeah, because yeah. Uh, during that water tower scene, he goes on to say about how the woman with Will Smith is in fact naked or topless. Yeah, and you can tell. Yeah, you can really tell. And he said he just kept on coming up with excuses to walk over to give her directions so he could ogle her a bit further. It's like, oh, this isn't something you admit to on a director's yeah. commentary guy. And also the fact that they shot that scene twice with two different actresses yeah it's like yeah, I just want to spend a little bit more time <laughs> I want to see more boobs but I'm uh, bored of this woman let's get another one in yeah <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think the other woman lacks chemistry with Will Smith let's just bring another one in <laughs> we won't tell her so it's all under the radar guys yeah just a uh, three man crew I, in fact I can do everything just give me the yeah. give me the boom give me the camera one hand <laughs> all I need is a fluffer and a box of Kleenex <laughs> <laughs> And and the other women in this film as well. I mean, we're talking about like Bai Ling. Yeah, I didn't. I've forgotten she was in this film. There's some weird ideas of this film as well. Like you got that the man in the picture, <laughs> the oh. sniper in the picture, which I thought was a great idea. But at this point, it's yeah. just a bit weird. I was like, it's cool, but what? <laughs> the thing is though, because I remembered that from the first time that I saw it. When he enters that room, you can clearly tell that they're not pictures. Mm. Once you know that they're not, and it's like even in the background, they're clearly moving, like <laughs> shaking back and forth yeah, with their yeah. guns in their hands. But I really like the idea. But yeah, she's killed off like very inconsequentially as well. Yeah, in fact, all of his kind of henchwomen are. In mm. fact, um, you you have the reason why, don't well, you? Well, it's like they did a test screening. And uh, apparently the audience had real issues with James West fighting these women henchmen, even though they've been established for quite a long time. When it came to the crunch and they were doing the last sort of major set piece with yeah. the battles, they seemed to have issue with all these bad women who were yeah. fighting. So they ended up changing it at the last minute and reshooting a scene with all these Judge Dredd rejects <laughs> that are apparently underneath the spider that we've never seen before. No, they didn't even decide to go back and just shoot a couple of insert shots no. where they could uh, just throw them here and there. Yeah, even yeah. when the giant spider comes to pick up the president or during Will Smith's whole drag dance-off, we never see them. Nope. We don't see what they're doing anywhere. Nope. It's clear that they just popped up out of nowhere. Yeah. And it's funny that they're isolated to a single set as well. Yeah. Because it's, it's an obvious reshoot. Great makeup, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, but I say they do just look like rejects from... Judge the, Dredd. The out, was it Scorched... Was it the Scorched Earth? It is the Scorched Earth sequence in, yeah. in the Judge Dredd movie. Yeah. Well, it's you and Bremner yes. in that, isn't it? It is. Yeah, they just look, end up looking like walk-ons for that. Yeah. That's another film that we need to cover. Yeah, we are indeed. just uncovering films today that we need to do. Flowing out of us. Hey, any other listeners want us to go out any of these soon? Just get back at us. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, oh God, this, 
There's almost too much to talk about with this film. <laughs> there is, there is. And I think one thing that we can talk about just for the moment is that we've already spoke about John Peters as a producer, how he almost sunk Sony. Let's talk about a little bit about how he sunk this film because he is uh, one of the main producers along with Barry Sonnenfeld on yeah. this film. Many people in the industry have a lot of things to say about John Peters, uh, one of which is Kevin Smith. And yeah. he worked with John Peters quite closely on his Superman script, which mm. I think was called The Death of Superman, yeah. uh, was his version, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. One of the things that John Peters really pushed on was that there would be a giant mechanical spider in that <laughs> film. And in well, fact, yeah. when you look at the IMDb trivia for many other films, it's you often get a little piece that says, oh, John Peters really pushed for a giant mechanical spider in this film. Yeah, it seems to be his Neil go-to. Gaiman, in, when they were oh, trying Sandman. To Sandman. Yeah, that's well. it, yeah. For some weird reason, he wanted Sandman to have a giant mechanical spider in And that. this was the film in which he his finally wish. got his got giant mechanical spider. <laughs> I wish. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> And actually, like I say, I quite like the giant mechanical spider. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. In this, I mean, they actually found a good home for it. Yeah. But I just don't understand the obsession. No. <laughs> it's just weird. When you read about that Superman development, it's just weird anyway. I mean, the fact that he didn't want him in the suit, he didn't want him yeah. to fly. Can you imagine it? And Superman in, in, like, in his suit got taxi, like, yeah. thumb out. And then I think in an interview later on, we said, yeah, I, I didn't really understand Superman. Like, no fucking shit you didn't understand <laughs> Superman. <laughs> It's like, how would you put this person in charge of Superman if you didn't want him to be in the suit or yeah. fly? They're like the basics that you need to have. I mean, if you have nothing else, you have those. <laughs> I mean, we have talked about on this film for quite a while about what we don't like. And it's so it's good to mention things like the giant mechanical spiders, things we do like, and the look of the film. Yeah, because it is what, definitely one of those films where for every single thing they do well, they do another thing really badly. Yes. And it's like literally one step forward, two steps back situation, yeah. really. So like I said, it does have merit, but there's so many things weighing it down that it can't be good. Yeah. I mean, the giant spider definitely works in the context of the actual story itself. And when you watch it in context, you have no issue with it at all. And like, yeah, it's one of those things where, because it's, I think it's attached to those stories of John Peters as well. Yeah. If it was completely detached from that, I don't think people would take as much issue. Yeah. And for the time, it's actually pretty well rendered as well. Like, I thought so, nice yeah. ILM, special effect, especially for the time. It's much like the way that people, as we've talked about in the past, how people always use the Ewoks as an example of the things that don't work in Return of Jedi, when yeah. there are other things to use as an example of what yeah. doesn't work. Yeah. And it's like this film, there's plenty that doesn't work. But actually, the giant mechanical spider, it kind of sits in this world yeah. quite well. Yeah. It's just a shame that everything around it, story-wise and character-wise and dialogue-wise, doesn't quite sit as well along with it inside the world itself it's fine yeah it's just become synonymous with the failure of this film i guess it's because it's so striking an image yeah i liked a lot of like gordon's inventions as well i love the head projector thing that he makes up that's one of my that's favorite really things cool. i've always remembered that even from yeah. the first time i saw I, it i like i like the the jet powered penny farthing as well and yeah the fact that they make it into a plane later on but again for all those good things they make that character get far too bogged down with his drag disguises yeah again the artificial boobs and things like that and when and you think about it the actual doc brown nature of the character is enough yeah. We don't need this whole master of disguise thing as well. <laughs> the fact that he's a That's mad scientist. Thing we can do. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that, oh, it is, it really I is. I am a master of disguise. <laughs> it's his go at Austin Powers, yeah. isn't it? But it's almost like you've got two separate characters here. One yeah, that really yeah. likes disguising himself as other people and one who's a mad scientist. The mad scientist is enough. Yeah, because he's not particularly good at the disguise bit. But no. They don't make enough of the fact that he's shit at it. <laughs> 
Yeah. Okay, have Kevin Klein play both versions of the president. Why not make him look like a bad version of the president? Yes. Because you need to mine comedy out of it. Because the fact that you have that whole set piece towards the end where he's coming out and playing the president next to the president. It's not funny because they look exactly the same. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Why not make them look like a shit version? Because they do the same thing in Fierce Creatures as well, where they have the son dress up as a father and try and make him look like the father. But it's funny because he looks shit. Yeah. And he's trying to be the father, even though it's the same actor playing the character. But it's like the character himself he's so thinks badly he made looks up as great. That other character. Yeah. yeah. He thinks he looks exact. He can't see the difference. Yeah. Because the, the comedy's minded, the fact is only a matter of time that he's going to get found out yeah. it's like they just they're blind to it like mm-hmm. they're blind to the potential and the comedy yeah that could be mined out like yes do it but you're missing all these things and it just comes off as odd yeah yeah it comes off as a weirdo and again i think that's probably why that character doesn't really come through all that well because he's just a bit too far off the edge mm-hmm. in terms of what is this character he's by one thing or the other yeah and again they haven't focused it in on one particular thing no it's almost like schizophrenic really yeah it's a kind of film in which somebody sat behind the scenes and gone wouldn't it be cool if yeah and without actually paying it much thought and just thought ah well the, the writers will think the rest you know <laughs> well the actors will work it out on the yeah yeah <laughs> And I guess, like, one of the last things that I really talk about as a positive for this film is the score by Elmer Bernstein. Yeah, yeah. Bar a couple of moments that sound a little bit too much like Men in Black. Specifically, the um, cornfield sequence sounds very much like Men in Black to me. (laughs) I actually thought it was a nice, classical, traditional Western score when they allowed it to be. Yeah. There's a couple of moments when they kind of shoehorn in some contemporary beats in and amongst the noise, and it doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. work. It doesn't work with the melodies, like specifically the uh, title sequence. It's like it has this really great Western feel, and then all of a sudden we get some beats in. And apparently Barry Sonnenfeld was that was his way of saying that we're going to do a uh, Western film, a period piece with some contemporary feel. It's like, well, if you weaved that in with the music throughout, rather than just having here's the traditional section, here's the contemporary section, back to the traditional again. You know, like, I still like it when it's most traditional. Yeah. That sequence here is borrowed. It looks very similar to the title sequence of the TV show. Yeah. The way it's constructed and the way it looks. But they don't bother to do an update of the actual TV theme tune, which is yeah. odd. Because they do use it, but in a really odd place in the film that's completely anonymous. And they don't even bother to credit the original composer, which was quite naughty. Yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of a weird mix. But, yeah, I did feel like the credits sequence is one of the better aspects of the film. It anyway. is. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I enjoyed it a lot. And it's nice because it's a fucking credit sequence. And have <laughs> titles going on afterwards. It's a self-contained credit sequence. Yeah. It's visually exciting and really interesting. And again, it's one of those things that would have worked really well if it had had a substantial pre-title sequence in front of it. As we were talking about before, it would have worked really well. It would have really been like a Western James Bond, yeah. which is kind of the whole intention of Wild West. Anyway. Yeah, it should have been. So yeah, it's kind of frustrating that you've got that. And it's a really weird dissolve into the titles as well. It is. It clearly doesn't sit well. No. Okay, so I think we've exchanged enough gunfire now with Wild Wild West. And it's actually time for us to see what audiences and critics made of the film. Way back, let's cast our minds back to 1999. Yeah, it's time for the stats and facts. So, critic-wise, this wasn't all that well received. Shocking! Surprisingly, uh, On Rotten Tomatoes, this has a... It's definitely not fresh anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, got a rating of 17%. Youch. Ooh, yeah. With an average rating of 4.1 out of 10. And the audience score is not much better. It's 28% and uh, 2.7 out of 5. Yowza. Average rating. The consensus is bombastic, manic, and largely laugh-free. 
<laughs> Wild Wild West is a bizarre misfire in which greater care was lavished upon the special effects than on the script. And I think that pretty much nails it on the head there. Yeah, yeah. Because again, I think the look of the film's really solid. I think there's definitely potential there. But yeah, it's the script that where it fails. I actually think 4 out of 10 is probably the right score for this type of film. Yeah, just going over to the uh, the periodicals. Oh, uh, <laughs> Empire Magazine gave it two star out of five. And they say, it's a pity the supposed family entertainment exerts such lattice exuberance. Pushed up cleavages are everywhere you look, and Hayek is insultingly called upon to do little more than be shapely. The scene in where our heroes lavishly ogle her exposed bottom is pure Benny Hill. <laughs> I definitely have to agree with you there. The script veers uneasily between weak gags, i.e. Klein naming his flying machine the Air Gordon, and some spectacularly misjudged white guilt-tripping about slavery as delivered by Smith, who must sweet-talk some rednecks to stop himself getting lynched <laughs> at one especially uncomfy, apparently comedic juncture. Yeah, I don't know if it's just a problem with Barry Sonnenfeld in terms of his approach to women in films, because I can't think of like a film of his where the female character has done justice, because even the Men in Black film, they do actually pay attention to establishing a female character and then just discard her for the sequels. Oh, yeah. Unceremoniously. And I think the only films in which he's succeeded in dealing with female characters is the Addams Family films, and that's because they've already been established. established yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not going to go out and say, oh, what a misogynist, but I, I, like, I can see a trend in his filmmaking style. Yeah, it's a definite weakness. Yeah. It feels like the only time he's really comfortable with female characters is when they're playing villains. Yes. I is in Men in Black 2 and uh, Adam's Family Values. Yeah. But yeah, in terms of in heroine roles, yeah, he doesn't really have much of an interest or taste for it. No. But yeah, going back to another regular reviewer, mm -hmm. the much-loved and much-missed Roger Ebert, uh, he gives this film one star <laughs> out of four if you yeah. weren't listening <laughs> so he says wild wild west is a comedy dead zone you stare in disbelief as scenes flop and die <laughs> the movie is all concept and no content the elaborate special effects are like watching money burn on the screen <laughs> you know something has gone wrong when a story is about two heroes in the old west and the last shot is of a mechanical spider riding off into the sunset i mean i don't quite agree with that last statement i like that last shot of yeah, them riding yeah. the mechanical spider into the i mean sunset. i don't feel that's where the problems lie because again i don't think the spider is a particular problem it's everything that's around it that makes a spider seem more out of place than it mm -hmm. should but yeah everything else that he's saying i totally agree with yeah and again on the imdb it's kind of a similar story to the audience score on rotten tomatoes they gave it 4.8 out of 10 yeah as like well. i say i think around about four out of ten is probably about right for this film it's now over the dial one or two out of yeah 10 i mean i think the 17 percent if yeah. it had more reviews now i'd probably say it's probably more of like a 35 percent. yeah i think so yeah like that. Again, I suppose it's when you actually pump the amount of money that they did into this film that people come down more harshly yeah. on, on these type of blockbusters because they've been paid far more attention. And often when you have a film like this that has been reshot, as we've established, and had even more money put into it, other films suffer. Other films don't get made. Yeah. Because of films like this. Yeah. And I guess that's why critics always come down harder yeah, on them. Yeah. And so they should really, because it's a lesson that Hollywood refuses to learn because we are still in and amongst it. Now, I have no problem with reshoots. I, I think that reshoots can add plenty of value to a film. But it can't be as with Suicide Squad that we've seen recently, which is a film that suffers very similarly to Wild Wild West. It can't be to completely retool a film to shoehorn an entire new tone 
It needs to just be to to amplify it. And I think that's the thing. I watched the film and then went and looked at the budget and went, oh, Jesus, that's a that's an expensive film for 1999. Yeah, it's, and it's 170 like, million. Yeah, and it definitely looked like the budget originally wasn't set at that and it just ballooned because of these reshoots and yeah. issues that they were having. You've actually done some tinkering with yeah, the budget. Yeah, I mean, I did just to see because I was like, wow, that's a really expensive film for that time. I mean, when you're thinking that only two years before you've got a film as big and expansive as Titanic, only costing a little bit more than that. Yeah. And thinking, mm, is this a film that really looks like a $170 million film at the time? And I'm like, no, it's probably more like 120 Yeah. Like in the time. So I did a little bit of calculation just to see what it would actually cost if you made the film now. And adjusted for inflation, this film would have cost $250 million. Wow. That's a $250 million comedy. Which is still... less than two hours. Which is still the absolutely top end of what people spend yeah. now on films for, for the biggest yeah. films. And to actually talk about the gross as well, because I know that you've done the figures on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. We the domestic gross was 113 million, or I guess 114 if we're rounding mm-hmm. up. That's domestically and foreign. It did 108 million, and overall it did 222 million worldwide, mm-hmm. and that is in 1999. Yeah. And in today's figures, that comes out as just around 320 million. So we have a budget then of $250 million. It's probably actually 251 if you adjust it. So it's a much bigger flop than even the likes of John Carter of Mars, yeah. which made, was made for $200 million and made 300 Yeah, you know, that kind of thing. In comparison, once we adjust for inflation, it's a much bigger flop. Again, this is not including any marketing budget at all, mm-hmm. which I would imagine was quite considerable because it was out there quite a lot. I remember at the time that the marketing budget for this film must have been huge, yeah. down to the music videos and oh, of course, yeah. going on. And I remember there were definitely a lot of tie-ins. Yeah, there was. There was. There was a lot well. of cross-media like promotional yeah. material. I'm not shocked then, considering how much they put into the marketing of the film, that it opened to number one in the week that it opened. And it actually opened with 27 million. But um, that's for the three-day weekend. I think over the four- or five-day weekend, it opened to 40 million, which um, I guess we're still expecting it to open to more. Yeah. Number two that week was Big Daddy. (laughs) Number three... Was Taz and we watched Big Daddy not too long ago, and oh, it was yeah. uh, god awful. That was a yeah. film that I remembered seeing when I was younger and thinking it was okay. Yeah, and then I watched it again, saying, "Oh, wasn't this one of Adam Sandler's better films?" And I didn't laugh once. No, I yeah, didn't it was laugh. Really not good. A single time. No. Um, number three was Tarzan, Disney's Tarzan, one that I think uh, we should definitely yeah, do definitely. on this episode, uh, doing a series. Number four was South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. A title that I'm still just astounded that they got away with. (laughs) Number five was The General's Daughter. Number six was the classic, the unforgettable Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. (sighs) That's where the Star Wars franchise got good, people. Open your (laughs) eyes. Don't want any hate mail. That was in its seventh week. And yeah, it was at $369 million at this point of a budget of $115 million. So we can see even by that how much Wild Wild West was underperforming. I know Mm. that that's Star Wars, but it goes to show they've put in, what, $60 million more in terms of budget? There was also a theory going around that I read up this morning as well to suggest that had it not been for two other films, Wild Wild West wouldn't have made as much money as it would have done anyway. Yeah. Somebody said that what a lot of unaccompanied miners were doing in the States were getting their ticket for Wild Wild West and then actually sneaking into South Park, Bigger, Longer and Uncut. Oh, I'm not and, surprised. Uh, American Pie. Yeah. As well, which I think came out maybe around about a week or two later or something like that. Yeah. But I think, yeah, it basically, I think some of the business for Wild Wild 
Wild West was actually not going on Wild Wild West. Yeah. People were watching other films. That wouldn't surprise me no. whatsoever. So yeah, number seven, we have Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. Jesus. I mean, that was on $172 million yeah. in its fourth week. So yeah. Wild Wild West is truly underperforming. That's a film of great nostalgic value to me. Uh, and me too, <laughs> truly. Number eight was Summer of Sam. Uh, number nine was Notting Hill. And number 10 was An Ideal Husband. Oh, yeah, yeah. Isn't that Rupert Everett or something like that? Oh, I think it might be, yeah. yeah. And uh, I've actually included number 11, which was The Mummy. And oh, uh, that was in its ninth weekend, and that had $147 million in gross, and that was had a budget of $80 million. Yeah. Oh, Naff Indiana Jones, as I like to call it. <laughs> well, it was still better than Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. I wish I'd known that at the time. I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. An Indiana Jones sequel is going to be, like, inferior to this. <laughs> Okay, and to um, actually have a look at the film's release that year to see how Wild Wild West actually compares. It actually doesn't even make the top ten <laughs> in this. Number one was Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Number two is Sixth Sense. Then we have Toy Story 2. Then we have The Matrix. Then we have Tarzan, The Mummy, Notting Hill, The World Is Not Enough, American Beauty, and Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. That is the top ten for the year in terms of highest gross on films. Wild Wild West doesn't even break that. It doesn't come close. Number 10 made $312 million. Yeah. And I think of that list, it was the most expensive film. Yeah. The disdain for this film didn't end there. I mean, it was one of the films that was heavily nominated for, I think it was around about eight Razzies, eight or nine Razzies. And uh, it won five of them that year. Yowza. And in fact, Robert Conrad, who was the original actor who played Jim West in the TV series, who um, really didn't like what they were doing with the film and have actually uh, objected to appearing in it because they wanted him to cameo as Ulysses S. Grant in the film and he refused because he didn't like where they were going with it. And I think you read the script and everything. Yeah, he refused. So to make his disdain even clearer, he <laughs> showed up for the Razzies and appeared to collect three out of the five awards. And I imagine he got there. tired then yeah. of, of simply collecting. <laughs> awards for the film yeah i think it won worst song yeah it won worst picture worst director and i think worst i don't know worst actress i think something like that yeah worst supporting actress was they didn't win but it was salma hayek and kevin klein in drag <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> they should have won yeah and i think kenneth branagh was up for worst supporting actor as well and uh, they didn't win though so i guess now we're at the end of things i have to ask the two questions that i ask at the end of every single episode and first up is are you any closer to understanding why wild wild west has been forgotten yeah i am because uh, i say it is interesting to a point and there are nice things in it but as the rotten tomatoes consensus states it's a very expensive misfire yeah that considering the amount of money and talent involved shouldn't have got anywhere near this bad and no. unfocused and confused it's almost baffling as to why it's like this really yeah so yeah i can definitely understand the general disdain and obviously this is a film that neither stars or director or half of warner brothers <laughs> like anymore yeah so it's really one that's been disowned by most people involved and obviously the audience who watched it as well. Mm -hmm. I think probably a little bit too unfairly because I was saying, yeah, I've seen films that have been much worse than this. Yeah. That have had better receptions as well. But at the same time, yeah, it is, it's just such a weird mess of a film and yeah. it's so confused that, yeah, it's just a strange, bizarre thing. It is, <laughs> definitely. 
Yeah, I, I do have to agree with you. I think uh, one of the reasons it's been forgotten is simply because they never figured out what type of film they wanted to make. And it became many different films during the making. And also simply that the West has not been a genre in which there has been much success to mine for a good few decades now. Yeah. Not for big budget films, anyway. Not for big budget films. Hopefully, the trend is going to be booked on television pretty soon. Although, that would be sci-fi western. Yeah. (laughs) um, And even just because of the film that they delivered, it just wasn't up to scratch for me. I don't think it is as terrible as people often refer to it as. I think at times it is. But I think there's some merit there. And I think there's some people that are really putting in their all into this piece of shit film. Yeah. And I think that needs to be acknowledged. But yeah, I can definitely see why it's been forgotten. And finally, is Wiki Wiki Wild Wild West one of the best of the forgotten films? Or should it simply remain best forgotten? It's definitely best forgotten. I don't think it is forgotten because I think out of the films that we've done, this is probably something that this is definitely a film that's kind of more notorious for some of the things it does, but probably forgotten as a film as a whole, I think. Yeah. Because like I was saying, I think it gets unfairly mauled for being something that it isn't. I think the whole like pomp and circumstance surrounding yeah. the film is yeah. what is remembered. Yeah, and I think also because it was so expensive at the time yeah. as well. And I mean, I'd like to see some of those things done again, but just in a better film, really. Get yeah. one of those films where the window dressing is nice, but the core of it, the the, I mean, not even the core of it because the central plot's fine. Yeah, it's yeah. It's just it's the stuff in between. It's the stuff in between the dressing and the core that's wrong. Yeah, the bones are fine and the skin's fine. It's just the meat in between. Yeah, that the doesn't flesh. work. Yeah. So, yeah, it definitely needs to be forgotten for those reasons because, yeah, the balance of the bad things that are in it just tip it over the edge. Yeah. And it's a weird thing as well just to note as well because I noticed it and I looked it up and then it looked as if other people had noticed it as well. There's a weird transition shot at the end of the film. I'm not sure whether this is because the filmmakers knew where the film was going to go, like the director knew that it was a bad film or something like that yeah. and almost did it as a joke. There's a transition shot which follows the end of the main sequence and goes into the literally the outro scene that it just focuses on a rock and this rock is sticking out of the ground and it either looks like a, a giant cock and balls or a middle finger. Yeah. Like it's a middle finger to the audience. And I'm not sure that's intentional or not because it, it is weird that it just focuses in on a single locked off shot on this spire of rock. Yeah. It just looks like a middle digit. But yeah, I kind of feel like that's it is kind of an intentional thing. It's like, hey, yeah. you got to the end. Fuck it you. feels like it. <laughs> sort of thing so yeah that's actually the the subtitle that they were working with wild wild west fuck you (laughs) (laughs) but i think best forgotten because i'll say there are things in it i really like but it's not enough to justify it in yeah. of itself. I do agree with you. Like I say, it is a train wreck at times, but I do think that there is something in the property. I do think they almost flirt with a good film at times. Yeah. And it's just a little bit of retooling, a little bit of restructuring, thinking about it, stripping the jokes back. Yeah. I do wonder if at one point it was a better film in terms of, I'd like to say, I would like to read Jim and John Thomas's draft to see yeah. what, what type of film that they had in mm-hmm. mind and see if it's more coherent. But Mm -hmm. yeah, somewhere along the line, they really fucked this up. And and yeah, and for me, it is certainly a best forgotten film. And um, I don't don't think there's much I can add, but to just bring it back around to that middle finger sticking right up at the audience. I think that's the best place to end this podcast. (laughs) Fuck you, audience. (laughs) And that's all we have time for on this week's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies, so please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes. Also, if you have the time to help us continue to grow our fanbase, please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found in the iTunes store. 
Join us next time as we'll be trading in gunslingers for space robots and, uh, well, gunslingers <laughs> as we take on the 70s sequel, Future World. But until then, it's bye from myself and Tarara from Andy. Oh, bye there, my friends. <laughs> I'm afraid. You're not going to get no your penis. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening.